Hi, this is Landon. Hey, it's Monique. And we're going to start today with a shout out. Yeah, to, to Brayden McLeod. To Brayden, because Brayden pointed out that in our clotting cascade, cascade. episode easy, right? that we switched intrinsic and intrinsic, intrinsic oh, I can see now why we did it, <laughs> intrinsic and extrinsic pathways. Mixed up, didn't we? We got them mixed up. They yeah. were actually the, the backwards one and... There's no point in us telling you the right answer here. But yeah. when you go and listen to it, it's actually in the show notes now that it says we mixed it up. It's at the 15-minute mark. But Brayden McLeod from, from Lakwalams. Yeah, BC. So BC. it used to be called Fort Simpson, but now we Port are Port Simpson. Did I say Fort? Yeah. Oh, Port Simpson. Sorry. But now it's Lakwalams. I also want to point out that it was actually Landon who made the mistake and not me. Was Just it? being clear. I think it I think, was you talking. No, I think he said it was you talking, didn't he? It doesn't matter. We fixed it. Apparently it does matter to you. (laughs) No, it doesn't matter. Thank you very much, Brayden, first of all, for listening. And secondly, for being constructive. That's that's the best part, right? We need to learn from each other. And so it's great. And thanks to those of you who've gone on our website and bought us a cup of coffee. Yay. A few people have bought us a cup of coffee. Thanking us for doing this. Um, Yeah. So what are we going to talk about this month? Well, one of, one of the challenging complaints that usually come into the emergency department, and part of the challenge is because it isn't a quick diagnosis or a quick cure is epigastric pain. And last year around this time, my poor nephew, um, who was in film school, called me and told me they'd been up all night finishing a school project and drinking plus plus coffee. Um, interesting that you would have mentioned that. Mm-hmm. And not eating. Which we're also drinking right now. <laughs> exactly. Uh, without the blueberry muffins. I'm having epigastric pain. Yeah, whatever. And no blueberry muffins. (laughs) So can we get back to the story? Uh, So my poor nephew uh, called me. He had been up all night finishing a school project, drinking lots of coffee, not eating. And he had had epigastric pain for over a week that wasn't getting any better. Now, this is so similar to so many stories of young people that I see. Except this time you were thinking, why does my family always phone me when they have health problems? I know. Much like every nurse thinks. I was going to say friends and family, um, actually. Um, But anyways, this is such a common complaint that I thought this would be a great thing for us to review. So we're going to kind of start by talking about the top of the GI tract or the food chain and epigastric pain and making sense of the difference between GERD and uh, peptic ulcer disease, and how dyspepsia fits into all of this. I think it's probably wise to start with dyspepsia, since it really is the umbrella term for any dysfunction of the digestive system. In layman terms, this would be indigestion. So dyspepsia is really a group of symptoms rather than a specific disease entity. And Dyspepsia um, symptoms include like upper abdominal fullness, heartburn, nausea, belching, or upper abdominal pain. People may also experience feeling full earlier than expected when eaten. Certainly dyspepsia is a common problem and it's frequently caused by GERD or gastroesophageal reflux disease, which we're going to discuss later, or it can also be caused by gastritis. In a small minority, it may be the first symptom of peptic ulcer disease and occasionally cancer, because we always have to kind of throw that in. Cancer has is, to be in there. It's a differential diagnosis. And probably diagnosis. seizures, coma, death is there somewhere yeah, too, Yeah, probably. Right? Yeah. But unexplained new onset dyspepsia in people over 55 and the presence of other alarming symptoms may require further investigation. So certainly if you ate or drank too much and you developed dyspepsia, that doesn't require extensive investigation. However, if you've also developed weight loss, chronic nausea, blood in the stool, perhaps you need a bit of further diagnosis or investigation. Perhaps. Yeah, perhaps. 
So let's talk a little bit about the difference between GERD and mm -hmm. peptic ulcer disease. And perhaps the easiest way to differentiate between the two is to look at some of the common symptoms and whether they are more relevant to one or the other. Mm -hmm. So, for example, both GERD and peptic ulcers can cause frequent burning pain. However, GERD typically results in burning pain that comes up into the chest, yeah. whereas peptic ulcer burning pain is typically restrained to the stomach. The burning pain associated with GERD is typically worse after eating a large meal, whereas many people with stomach ulcers report relief after eating. Both acid reflux and peptic ulcers can cause nausea, but it is more common with peptic ulcers. Both ulcers and acid reflux can be increased by consuming certain foods. For example, spicy foods commonly leads to heartburn, but it can also irritate an existing ulcer. But let's be clear that spicy foods do not cause ulcers. <laughs> Hopefully not. I love spicy food. My goodness. Mm -hmm. The hallmark sign of acid reflux is that symptoms can change based on position. Heartburn increases when you lay down or bend forward as this makes, allows the stomach's contents to be... Uh, not to be restrained by gravity. Stomach ulcers will hurt regardless of position, whereas heartburn can increase in intensity based on position. So it's just kind of a few little tests, you, clinical exams you can do. And again, not 100% of the people aren't going to fit in there. And, yeah. and we never want you to, as a little caveat, we, we don't want you to go down the GERD road in someone having an MI. So yes. you're always going to assume any pain <laughs> in that little magic box above yes. the diaphragm is an is chest pain until proven otherwise, but once the 12 lead looks fine, this may be a few things that you think about. So as much of the, as much of the treatment for GERD and peptic ulcer diseases around health teaching, it's important for nurses to kind of understand these diseases. And I know we yeah. don't typically diagnose them, but you kind of need to know a little bit about them. So oh, absolutely. So and let's I think talk a little bit about each specifically. Yeah. And I think that we, we do do a lot of uh, health teaching, and I think sometimes we, we should we should be. And I said, I think sometimes that's part of the problem with a lot of these epigastric pains and GERD and peptic ulcer disease because people don't get a lot of information. So it is good for us to understand it. Gastroesophageal reflux disease affects the lower esophageal sphincter. In normal digestion, the lower esophageal sphincter opens to allow food to pass into the stomach and closes to prevent food and acidic stomach juices from flowing back into the esophagus. Gastroesophageal reflux occurs when your lower esophageal sphincter is weak or relaxes inappropriately, allowing the stomach contents to flow up into the esophagus. A common cause is hiatus hernia. It, a hiatal hernia weakens the lower esophageal sphincter and increases the risk for GERD. Dietary and lifestyle choices may contribute to GERD. Certain foods and beverages, including chocolate, peppermint, fried or fatty foods, coffee, alcohol, may trigger reflux and heartburn. So that's like your diet, really. Oh, stop it. I do. Well, the chocolate. Well, the chocolate and the coffee and the alcohol, really. And the fried or fatty foods. No, I don't really like, I don't like fried fatty foods. Whatever. Thank You've you very much. You've made Malaysian food. It's all fried rice <laughs> no, and noodle. No, it is not. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, studies show that the cigarette smoking relaxes your lower esophageal sphincter. So that actually can contribute to GERD as well. And that and part you don't do? No, definitely no, not. Definitely not. Obesity and pregnancy can also play a role in GERD symptoms. Treatment is really directed at lifestyle and dietary changes and aims to decrease the amount of reflux or reducing damage to the lining of the esophagus from that reflux materials. So you should avoid foods and beverages that trigger reflux and heartburn. Uh, decreasing the size of the portion at mealtime may also help control the symptoms. 
Eating meals at least two to three hours before bedtime may lessen the reflux by allowing the acid in the stomach to decrease and the stomach to empty partially. Being overweight often worsens symptoms, so you may feel some relief when you lose weight. Stopping smoking is important to reduce GERD symptoms. And maybe even elevating the head of the bed on six-inch blocks or sleeping on a specially designed wedge reduces heartburn by allowing gravity to minimize the reflux of stomach contents into the esophagus. And helps with your congestive heart failure. Yes, it does. Both things at the same time. Uh, It's better for you to actually elevate the entire head of the bed instead of using pillows because if you use pillows to prop yourself up that only increases pressure on the stomach itself right because you're folding yourself exactly instead of staying yeah. flat yeah. now the patient may also need some type of medication as well so antacids can help neutralize the acid and it also provides temporary or partial relief long-term use of st- um, antacids however can result in a lot of different side effects so diarrhea altered calcium metabolism and a buildup of magnesium which we actually have talked about calcium magnesium in, in a different podcast which is the most famous podcast we've ever there done, you go for some reason i know i don't understand it but anyway because none of us understand calcium <laughs> magnesium and phosphate. that's what it is now for chronic reflux and heartburn the patient may also be prescribed h2 blockers which actually inhibits the acid secretion so common medications might include oh my goodness Cimetidine, sorry, PEP said um, ranitidine. Also, the patient may be prescribed a protein pump inhibitor. It inhibits an enzyme necessary for acid secretions. So I'm sorry, I just forgot where I was on my, I was like, where you, am I? I wish you could see the notes, everyone, because she just skipped <laughs> over all the big words of I the know, drugs and, and basically said ones. Pepsid. You know, it's been a long morning already, Okay. Now, what was I talking about? Do okay, to, so do you want me to list can we the just, protein pump inhibitors for you? Because, yeah, it might be helpful. But wait so, a minute. Let me just kind of oh. review because you've just done this too fast. So the medications are antacids, H2 blockers. Would you like to repeat them? Because I so, had a... So cimetidine, famotidine, nizatidine, and ranitidine. Good. So tegamit and Zantac, Pepsi. Good. Yeah. And pro, or a protein pump inhibitor. So Nexium, Prevacid, Prilosec, Protonix, Asifex, Dexalant. And okay, he also skipped some of the big words. Well, it's that... all the azoles. I know. So omeprazole, lanzoprazole. Yeah. I know, exactly. So any of those oprazoles. <laughs> those are the protein pump inhibitors. I know. And, and any we... of the edines yes. are the H2 blockers. Very good. There we go. That's an easier way to say it. I think so. Than all those big words. So generally speaking, though, most patients will do fine just with dietary lifestyle changes, plus or minus medication. But occasionally patients with severe chronic symptoms or symptoms not relieved by the normal treatment need further investigation, like an upper GI series, an endoscopy with an esophageal biopsy. This is really just to kind of rule out other diagnosis. A small number of people with GERD may need surgery because of severe reflux and poor response to medical treatment. However, surgery should not be considered until all other measures have been tried. There is a kind of a weird um, surgical procedure called fundoplication, and it increases pressure in the lower esophagus. 
And that involves making the lower esophageal sphincter function better or using electrodes to promote scarring of the lower esophageal sphincter. And those are kind of some newer options in treatment. But that is like somebody who's having very, very extreme. So for the most part, GERD is a benign condition, but it can result in some serious complications. Like you can get esophagitis, which can cause esophageal bleeding or ulcers, or you can actually develop a stricture due to chronic scarring, which could make it difficult for you to swallow. And some patients actually develop something called erosive esophagitis, also known as Barrett's esophagus, which increases the risk of esophageal cancers. See, cancer is always one of the differentials. It's always in there, Always isn't up it? there. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about the other ones. You yeah. talked about GERD. I'm going to talk about peptic ulcer disease or... PUD. PUD. We like saying PUD. PUD. <laughs> P-U-D. PUD. We, we might call it PUD from now on. <laughs> Although I notice it's not in the notes ever again. No, it is. I like Darn. it. We should talk. PUD. We should pay... And you have to kind of say it a certain way. Pud. Pud. (laughs) So peptic ulcers are open sores that develop in the inside lining of the stomach, which are gastric ulcers, or the upper portion of the small intestine. We call them duodenal ulcers. Mm -hmm. Or if you're from other parts of the world, duodenal Duodenal. ulcers. (laughs) We call it a duodenum and... I know that in Canada we do. In some other places, it's a duodenum. Yeah, I know. With it's pud. funny word. You know, pud, pud in your duodenum. duodenum. Uh-huh. <laughs> so peptic ulcers occur when acid in the digestive tract eats away at the inner surface of the stomach or small intestine. The acid creates a painful open sore that can bleed. Mm-hmm. The the or the cause of this is the digestive tract is is coated in a mucousy layer that normally protects against acid, but if the amount of acid is increased or the amount of mucus is decreased, an ulcer can develop. For many years, excess acid was believed to be the major cause of PUD. So much of the treatment was on neutralizing and inhibiting the secretion of stomach acid. While acid is considered necessary for the formation of ulcers and its suppression is still the primary treatment, the two most important initiating causes of ulcers are an infection of the stomach by a bacterium called Helicobacter pyloricus. Very good. what we will call is, I speak Latin as well, you know. Yes, of course. uh, Which we will call H. pylori. You've probably heard that more often than the full word. And chronic use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or NSAIDs, including aspirin. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, cigarette smoking also is an important cause of ulcers, as well as failure of ulcer treatment. See, smoking is bad. Stop smoking. I know. Number one thing you can do for your health, stop smoking. All right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about H. pylori. So Helicobacter pylori bacteria commonly live in the mucus layer that covers and protects tissues that line the stomach and the small intestine. Often the H. pylori bacterium cause no problems, but it can cause inflammation of the stomach's inner layer, producing an ulcer. It's not quite clear how H. pylori infection spreads. It can be transmitted from person to person by close contact, such as kissing. Um, People may also contract H. pylori through food and water. It is a gram-negative spirochete. For those of you who love microbiology, spirochetes were actually the coolest ones, the little spinny things. Things, I know. They look cool. It was first linked to gastritis in 1983. So actually more of a, quite a modern disease, really, in the grand scheme of medicine. Um, Since then, further study of H. pylori has revealed that it is a major part of the triad, which includes acid and pepsin, that contributes to primary peptic ulcer disease. The unique microbiologic characteristics of this organism, such as urease production, allows it to alkalinize its microenvironment and survive for years in the hostile acidic environment of the stomach. 
where it causes mucosal inflammation and in some individuals worsens the severity of peptic ulcer disease. That was a lot of big words. You did very well. Thank you. <laughs> when H. pylori colonizes the gastric mucosa, inflammation usually results. The causal association between H. pylori gastritis and duodenal ulceration is now well established in the adult and pediatric literature. And in patients infected with H. pylori, high levels of gastrin and pepsinogen and reduced levels of somatostatin have been measured because wow. we measure those all the time. Like, that's well, just when you first come in. <laughs> can you spit on this piece of paper? Exactly. And we're going to measure all those things. In infected patients, exposure of the duodenum to acid is increased. Okay. It's quite so, interesting, isn't it? Yeah. That just one little organism that usually just lives in your stomach, then all of a sudden causes In his all little microclimate. I know. Exactly. You like that one. And then he finally decides, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. And he infects your stomach. I know. Hmm. Bad, badness. All right. So that's H. pylori. Yeah. Uh, second main cause is, is non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. So they cause ulcers by in- ulcers, <laughs> ulcers by interfering with the production of prostaglandins in the stomach. That was my nickname in nursing school. Was it? Prostaglandins? Prostaglandin. Oh, that's very funny. Mm-hmm. Okay. Prostaglandins are substances which are important in helping the linings of the esophagus, stomach, and duodenum to resist damage by the acidic digestive juices of the stomach. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Please, everyone, do not start calling me <laughs> prostaglandin. <laughs> Okay, cigarette smoking uh, not only causes ulcers, it also increases the risk of complications from ulcers, such as ulcer bleeding, stomach obstruction, perforation. Cigarette smoking also is a leading cause of failure of treatment for ulcers. Research has not shown that coffee, colas, spicy food, and caffeine have a role in ulcer formation, nor life stresses or personality types. That's kind of what everybody thinks, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. We, we even used to call them stress ulcers. I know, I exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, The diagnosis of peptic ulcer disease is suspected in patients with dyspepsia, especially in the setting of NSAID use or a history of H. pylori infection. Yeah. So So we do have to kind of think about some of the diagnostics. Yeah. Like, do you just assume that's what they have and treat it? Or is there something we can do? Well, certainly the easiest thing to do is H. pylori testing. So all patients diagnosed with peptic ulcer disease should undergo testing for H. pylori infection. And often that's done um, with a breath test or sometimes more invasively with a biopsy. The urea breath test or even a stool antigen test um, can be, you can actually find H. pylori in that. The problem, though, is that if a patient is already taking protein pump inhibitors, you can actually get a negative uh, breath test or a stool test. So you you, you kind of have to have this test when you don't you're not getting treated. The second thing is upper endoscopy. So it that is actually the most accurate diagnostic test for peptic ulcer disease, but much more invasive. Of course. So you know you kind of don't want to do that unless you are thinking you need to do a biopsy because you want to rule out any malignancy. It kind of makes sense if you're actually looking right down there and seeing ulcers that the sensitivity is going to be high like about 90% right. or so. Cuz it's a camera. Yes, exactly, looking down as long there. As the so it does kind of make at sense. It knows what they're looking for. Right. And so some of the things that you should be aware of and when we should kind of increase our um, investigations is the alarm features or red flags and they're like bleeding, anemia, early satiation, unexplained weight loss, progressive dysphagia. I can't say that. Adenophagia. Adenophagia. Don't know what it is, but I can say it. Um, Recurrent vomiting and a family history of GI cancers. Uh, Patients with perforated PUD usually present with a sudden onset of severe, sharp abdominal pain. 
and I've said this many, many times to people who know me well, anything that's sudden mm. is concerning, right? It's usually it's something that, yeah, it, absolutely. It's either a thrombus or a um, uh, bleed. So there you go. Medications that can actually help with PUD is really antibiotics to actually treat the H. pylori infection. That's why it's so important to know if you have H. pylori or not. They actually will give you three different types of, uh, two different types of antibiotics, and usually you get to take them for two weeks. So you either get amoxicillin, clarithromycin, metrodidazole or tinidazole or tetracycline and levofloxacin. How do, you, how do you know which ones to give? I don't think it, the choice is determined by the location and what, like geographic location yeah. is what I meant, not the location in your stomach, sorry, and current antibiotic resistant rate. So your hospital should have, or your community should have what the resistant rate is. Because there's H. pylori that. resistant yes. strains. There's that... resistance to everything. Right. So it's really important for you to know what your uh, geographical resistance rates are. Antibiotics are usually taken for two weeks, and they usually combine it with a protein pump inhibitor and H2 blockers, which we already talked about it. Now, because uh, protein pump inhibitors and H2 blockers don't work immediately, often antacids are prescribed for symptom relief until they kick in. So don't expect that as soon as you start it that you're going to feel relief. So you need to take it for at least a week or two weeks before it starts to so make a difference. So that's good to know for yeah. patient teaching, or they might end up back in 24 exactly. hours. Like... And stop taking it, right? It didn't work, so I stopped taking right. it, right? Um, okay, let's. so that's... GERD and, and PUD. PUD. <laughs> Let's talk a bit about gastritis. Yeah. So some of you might be wondering where gastritis fits into all of this. Again, it's um, gastritis is a bit of an umbrella term. It encompasses conditions that cause irritation and inflammation to the lining of the stomach. It can be a brief and sudden illness, like acute gastritis, a longer-lasting condition, like chronic gastritis, or something totally rare that is usually diagnosed by GI specialists, mm -hmm. like atrophic gastritis, autoimmune gastritis, eosinophilic gastritis, yeah. all kinds of weird gastritis. Very weird stuff, yeah. So an example of acute gastritis is stomach onset that may follow the use of alcohol or certain medications such as aspirin or NSAIDs. Yeah. An example of chronic gastritis is uh, H. pylori. Now remember that H. pylori lives in the GI tract and does not cause inflammation, but doesn't always cause infection leading to ulcers. Right. So this is why when patients who are diagnosed with peptic ulcer disease and have positive H. pylori tests, they are treated not only with an antibiotic, but also protein pump inhibitors and H2 blockers to decrease the acid and block the inflammation. Right. Um, foods that may cause gastritis can differ from person to person, but in general, foods that can cause gastritis include beverages that contain alcohol or caffeine, spicy foods, foods that contain chocolate or foods high in fat. And again, they're individualized, yeah. right? So treatment is really the same as with all other GI issues. Treat the cause, lifestyle, and dietary changes. So if anyone is interested, by the way, my nephew did have an H. pylori test because I treated him and it was negative and his blood work came back normal, no anemia. And after a short course of antacids and a protein pump inhibitor, about one month, he felt much better, uh, though he had to listen to his aunt go on and on about lifestyle and dietary modifications. So he likely just had an acute gastritis. So... God, that aunt can be so I annoying. I know, she is very annoying. She's very controlling. <laughs> so 
In concluding, at the end of the day, you can see that gap epigastric pain is challenging and trying to figure out specifically what the cause and treatment entails may not always happen in an emergency department. In, our, in the emergency department, it is our responsibility to rule out those red flag symptoms, bleeding, weight loss, abdominal distension, etc., and refer accordingly. In general, the treatment for epigastric pain in the ED should include treating the pain. So many EDs use some type of antacid and local anesthetic, a cocktail we call a pink lady, so viscous lidocaine and Divol. Baseline blood work, which should include LFTs, and the eMERGE physician or the NP may do a rectal exam looking for occult blood in the stool. Diagnostic tests may include an ultrasound if you're thinking a biliary cause like a right upper quadrant pain with elevated LFTs. Discharge instructions should always include lifestyle modifications, so weight loss, stop smoking, dietary modification, avoid triggers, avoid alcohol, caffeine, and follow up to make sure the symptoms resolve. Patients may go home with a prescription for H2 blockers or PPIs, but perhaps not if this is a one-time episode, but it's something that uh, is continuing. It's better for you to get those prescriptions from your GP so that they can monitor whether it's working or not. Excellent. Okay. So that's it for this month? Yeah. So you need to eat good so you feel good. And stop smoking. Yes, absolutely. And don't get a crazy aunt. (laughs) See you next month. Bye. Hi, it's Landon again. And Monique. We're we're seriously sitting here eating a cookie after recording that. And we think that we called them protein, protein pump, pump inhibitors <laughs> the whole time. Instead of proton pump inhibitors. I'm I'm pretty sure I did. I think I might have too. So they are proton <laughs> pump inhibitors, not protein, protein pump, pump inhibitors. Yeah, just a quick, you know, just clarification. To make us right. Yeah. Bye. Bye. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursum.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursumCast and also find us on Facebook at NursumPodcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education. www.prneducation.ca